Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. He directs them, but it is God who actually delivers them. God makes a way for them. God saves them from slavery. Pillars of cloud and fire lead them. A sea parts before them. Manna from heaven feeds them. Water from a rock quenches their thirst. This is all God's doing. They make it to Mount Sinai. There's a ceremony of consecration, of commitment. They know God is there. The rumbling of the thunder, the sound of the trumpets, smoke and fire, the mountain trembling, all signal God's presence. Moses goes up the mountain and God gives the Ten Commandments. You remember the first of those commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. And the second of the ten, you shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or worship them. Those are the first two commandments. No other gods, no idols. Back to the story as it continues There is more thunder and lightning and again the sound of a trumpet and the mountain is smoking and standing and watching from a distance the people know that this is serious business and they are afraid. Moses goes back into conference with God into the thick cloud of darkness where God is present. And there are many other laws and rules given to him to share with the people. Some of the rules are about purity, some about property, some about justice, some about all the requirements and design for a tabernacle. Moses is back up on the mountain for a long time. Meanwhile, the people begin to get anxious, impatient, uncertain as they wait. They don't know if Moses is coming back. And so they ask Aaron, Moses' brother, his stand-in while Moses is on the mountain, to make new gods for them. New gods that will go before them as they continue their journey. Now that Moses is delayed, perhaps has even disappeared, It's ironic, it's disturbing that the very first thing they have been told not to do is what they choose to do. They are ready to break those first commandments. It is as if they have so much anxiety and impatience that they have developed amnesia, poor judgment, disloyalty, and disobedience all rolled into one. It feels to them perhaps like they have been waiting forever while to us it looks like they have no patience, no endurance, no commitment whatsoever. A commandment for no other gods besides the one who brought them out of Egypt? No idols? No matter, Aaron, make us some idols, make us some other gods. He melts their rings and makes for them a golden calf. 
and they worship it. I took a few moments this past week to try to catch up on my reading in the Christian Century magazine. I've fallen behind, so I was reading the September 23rd issue, and right away I came across two references to idolatry, which was interesting to me in light of this morning's scripture, because although I have spent the week with this story of the golden calf right in front of me, idolatry is not exactly a contemporary hot-button topic even in a religious magazine like the Christian Century. But there it was. First, in an article about pop music and pop culture superstar Beyonce and her latest visual album, Black is King, where she deploys Ashen, the Yoruba goddess of water, fertility, love, and purity as an alter ego. I am Beyonce Gazelle Knowles Carter, she sings in one song. I am Nala, sister of Naruba, Ashen, queen of Sheba. I am the mother. The person writing the article notes that Beyonce even has a worship service named after her. The Beyonce Mass, which has used the Kennedy Center as its sanctuary. Although, quote, the service does not worship Beyonce, but instead evokes the power of the divine feminine to tell biblically-oriented stories steeped in womanist theology. Beyonce's influence transcends age and race, the writer continues, but with this growing cultural power has come controversy. Given her invocation of the goddess Ashen and the existence of a worship service name for her, some question whether her influence is ultimately for the good or if she may actually think that she herself is a god. She has been accused of idolatry, end quote. Now, the writer goes on to argue against that perspective, saying that the American cultural rejection of black religious experience is part of our prejudiced past and present, and that the objections people have to Beyonce referencing a Yoruba goddess have less to do with Christian fidelity than with ignorance and embarrassment about what we do not know or understand. Nevertheless, there was that word, idolatry. I turned a few pages further in the magazine, and there was a report about a speech that Vice President Mike Pence gave back in August, where he took Bible verses and replaced references to Jesus with patriotic language. Let us run the race marked out for us, he was reported to have said. Let us fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents and let us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom and never forget that where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom and that means freedom always wins. Of course you'll recognize the switch of old glory for Jesus in the first part of the quote and the removal of Jesus who in the Bible is named the author and perfecter of our faith from the second part. Some evangelical Christian leaders praised the speech and the references to the flag, especially since the speech was given at Fort McHenry where the battle in 1814 inspired the national anthem. Said one, quote, we can bend our knee to Christ in faith and stand for our flag in freedom. Thank you, Vice President Pence. But others took exception 
the senior assistant to the president of InterVarsity, an evangelical organization, tweeted, Glad Pence seems to know scripture, grieved and appalled, he'd believe substituting old glory for Jesus wasn't blasphemous and equating the freedom Paul was referring to with civil liberties. Another evangelical pastor tweeted, this is Babylon, this is idolatry. Again, there's that word, idolatry. And in passing along those two examples, I'm not making a political statement or even a cultural statement, just reminding us that there is a religious underlayment that is still present for us in the culture. You know what I mean by an underlayment, right? It's like the the thin padding that is underneath the hardwood floor or the carpeting. You don't necessarily see it, but it is that thin foundation underneath the flooring. Perhaps another way of saying that is to say that there is still enough of a religious sensibility underneath our cultural context that both political leaders and pop culture icons will see some benefit in appropriating religious language and imagery, using it, sometimes receiving praise, sometimes receiving criticism, but using it to express themselves, maybe to elevate themselves or validate their beliefs or simply to connect more powerfully with their intended audience of supporters. Is what they do idolatry? as those quoted in the magazine suggested? Claiming metaphorically or artistically a goddess identity, taking parts of scripture and swapping out divine reference for nationalist reference, is that idolatry or is it something else? Of course, the word idolatry is an archaic word even when it suddenly makes an appearance in the contemporary context. But even as uncommon a word as it is for us, I think it's worth not just throwing it around, but unpacking it, unpacking its meaning. Defined in biblical and theological circles, idolatry is worshiping or idolizing something or someone that is not God. It is making a false God like the golden calf in the Exodus story. Meanwhile, a purely dictionary definition might be something like this one I came across this week. Extreme admiration, love, or reverence for something or someone. It's interesting that the dictionary definition is not necessarily suggesting that idolatry is a negative thing. After all, what's so inherently bad about having strong or even extreme devotion to someone or something. But in a religious context, there is an expectation that our extreme love and devotion should be reserved for God alone. Not for objects, not for influence, not for power, not for family, not for possessions, not for money, not for anything else. Reverence and worship should be reserved for God alone. Otherwise, our priorities are out of order. Our values are self-centered and self-driven. Our interests are only our own. That, pointing to whatever object we might revere, is not God. 
Pop icons are not God. The flag is not God. You are not God. Only God is God. Now, here's where it gets kind of tricky. God is God, yes, but according to whose definition? That is, we might say that we agree that God deserves our reverence, our worship, but who gets to say who God is and what exactly devotion to God looks like? And what kind of worship, what kind of reverence, what kind of loyalty and obedience and devotion is God actually looking for? In the religious realm, I get kind of uncomfortable when I'm around people who talk about God first, family second, country third, or words to that effect. The case they are making, it always seems to me, is that they have their priorities in order. And maybe they do. But on the other hand, talk is cheap. How do you actually put God first? What are we talking about? What does that look like in practice? It's important as we ask that question to remember that we are part of a small slice of Christian faith called brethren who put the New Testament at the center of the scriptures and the gospels at the center of the New Testament and Jesus at the center of the gospels. And so when we think about being devoted or obedient or loyal to God, we latch on to this definition of putting God first, this definition that Jesus gave us. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a one, two, three kind of hierarchical prioritization. It's a both and understanding of religious ethics and practice. Loving God is linked to loving others. So that's one thing that feels tricky, this matter of just who and what we are talking about when we claim allegiance to God. The other is that I'm not sure that our idols are really as easily pigeonholed as having, quote, extreme devotion to pop icons or to a political agenda. That is, most of us do not struggle with worshiping Beyonce or Old Glory. Our idols are more subtle And I suspect, therefore, more dangerous than that. We worship things like personal power and the privileges of racial advantage and identity and devotion to the security and superiority of our own family or tribe. We worship shortcuts and pain relief and independence We give our heart to political certainties and cultural bias and feelings of entitlement. We worship winning and defeating an enemy and demonizing the other. It's not that we are melting down rings and making them into golden statues of calves and then bowing to them. We're not quite that literal in our idolatry. 
but we still keep turning from God and turning toward other things that we imagine or even naively and stubbornly hope will save us from our own slavery in our own Egypt, will save us from our own wandering in the wilderness, will save us from our own self-absorption and delusion at the foot of our own Mount Sinai. And even though our idolatry may be more subtle than that of the ancient Israelites, like theirs, our idolatry is still rooted in anxiety and amnesia. It is a forgetting of where we have come from and who helped us to get here and a losing track of the fact that the world does not revolve around us. In that sense, ours is the same as theirs because in every age, idolatry is what happens when we choose to throw in with earthly assurances and influences instead of looking for and trusting in the divine presence. What do you really think is going to save you? The preemptive strike of violence, being right when someone else is wrong, What is going to relieve your anxiety? Having more influence or power, more money? What is going to lead you out of the wilderness? Some kind of fast-acting pain reliever? Something that will make you look better in the eyes of others? What do you trust? Who do you trust? A golden calf? Something of your own making? A God you shaped with your own hands? I always wondered what it meant in the Ten Commandments when it said that you shouldn't make idols, shouldn't worship other gods because, quote, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I wondered about the jealousy part. So this week I looked up the word in my analytical concordance and guess what? The word jealous means jealous. But in this sense, ardent, committed, devoted to the relationship and therefore not willing to tolerate rivals of the heart. I asked all those questions a moment ago. What do you really think is going to save you? What is going to relieve your anxiety? What is going to lead you out of the wilderness? What do you trust? Who do you trust? Those are all good questions for those who would make an idol of something. But maybe the deeper question is this. Who do you love? Who do you love? Just yourself? Do you love your anxiety, your pain, your familiar fears? Do you love your own comfort, 
your own advantage? Or do you love the one who loves you, who created you, and who might yet recreate you? Do you love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Think on that. Because when you do, you are thinking on the question of your deepest identity and your greatest source of hope. Who do you love? Surely not gods of melted down gold shaped by your own trembling hands. No. Love the living God. Amen. Please join me in some moments of silent reflection and prayer.